0: Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.
1: The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host.
2: Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Chris the Chew Manchu, and I'm joined by Jelena and Crystal. Our guest tonight is Dr. Tracy Wilkinson to discuss healthy sexuality. But first, let's remind you about what the show is about.
3: We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions
0: about core topics in pediatric medicine. Dr. Tracy Wilkinson is a pediatrician and health services researcher at Indiana University School of Medicine. Her work focuses on reproductive healthcare access, especially for adolescents and young adults. Her current projects include The Path for You, a program that provides free access for all forms of birth control in Indiana, and In Control, which is a birth control navigator program for young people. She's an advocate for reproductive health rights and an access to both locally in Indiana and nationally. She's passionate about linking policy to improve the health of all of our communities.
3: So without further ado, let's get to it. Get ready to talk about sexual and reproductive health and rights in some conceivable or inconceivable ways.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You got a pun in.
2: (laughs) You said you stole that from Reddit? (laughs) (laughs) Our guest tonight, Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, is a principal investigator for Cooper Surgical, Organion, and Merck. During this episode, we have tried to avoid all associated brand names, and she has agreed to base all recommendations on peer-reviewed data. All right. I want to welcome everyone back to the show. I have the great Dr. Tracy Wilkinson here. Hi.
1: So nice to be here.
2: Now, uh, for the purposes of the show, we, you know we try to be pretty casual. Is it okay if we address you by your first name during the show?
1: Absolutely. Excellent.
2: Excellent. And I'm also joined by Crystal and Jelena. Do you want to say hi, guys?
1: Hey. Hello.
2: All right. So we're just going to jump into it. And so we just get to know you. All right, Tracy. So can you give me a one-liner to describe yourself?
1: Okay. I'm a Tennessean who's lived all over the country, currently lives in Indiana, and firmly believes that all pediatricians can be amazing reproductive health care providers and advocates.
2: That's Perfect. <laughs> all right do our other hosts have some questions we want to ask
3: all right so i have a question uh what is your favorite podcast
1: yeah so my favorite podcast is a show called you're wrong about it is an amazing podcast where they take various topics or stories from when i was younger and i thought i knew what happened and dissect it down to the nitty-gritty details And what ends up happening is at the end of the podcast you have a total different impression and opinion of an event or a person or a topic than you did at the start. And it is my favorite podcast because it really challenges me in an hour.
0: I love that. I was just listening to a podcast with Tracy Elise Ross, and she was talking about reflecting on being younger. She's like, I would never go back. I've learned so much since those moments. And so it seems like a cool opportunity for you to kind of reflect on the past. And speaking of reflection, I think a lot of us, um, whether we're in training or whether we're actively practicing, reflect and think about things that we could have done differently um, or moments that didn't go so great. Do you have a favorite failure or a misstep or something that you've you know experienced in your career that you're like, wow, didn't go the way I planned? but here's what I'm taking from it.
1: Yeah. I completely failed my first anatomy exam in med school. And by failed, I mean like 40 was my grade, not even close. And I remember having a moment thinking I would just take my med school loans and open a Chipotle chain because there wasn't one in my city at the time. And I had a real like moment of trying to figure out what I was doing and why I was doing it and buckled down really, really hard for the next exam. And managed to pull off a passing grade for that semester. But it's one of those moments where I remind people that failure sometime can be really good. Um, because I don't think if I had had that moment, I would be so committed to like my medical career as I am today.
2: Awesome. I'm pretty sure a lot of people can identify with that, especially me. I've I failed my own tests in medical school, and I think I'm much better for it. So uh, I'm glad you shared that. And so other people know that uh, they're not the only ones. All right. Do we have any other questions? Or maybe we should just jump right into it because I feel like uh, we're going to have a lot of things to cover this episode.
1: i say let's jump in. All right. All right. So before
0: we jump into cases directly, I think it's important to talk about how we want to have this conversation and think about a framework to help guide us, um, and primarily thinking about reproductive justice. And so, Tracy, can you introduce us to what exactly reproductive justice and how we as pediatricians can engage in this framework when we're thinking about
1: sexuality and development? Yeah, thanks so much for that question, Christelle. So reproductive justice is actually a term that was developed by women in the movement that had had traditionally been left out of that movement and by that I mean women of color. It was developed in the 1990s and it is a framework in which we are trying really hard now to frame all of our work in the reproductive health world. And I'm just going to say what reproductive justice is and these are not my words, they belong to the actual people that started this movement, but reproductive justice means that it's a human right to parent or not parent and to raise those children in safe and healthy communities. And what that means is that it's a human right to make those decisions. And when I talk about reproductive justice, I remind people that when an individual is making these decisions, it's not in a silo and it's not singular. They're thinking about so many other aspects of their life when they're thinking about what to do next. And that's something that I think as medical providers, when you are talking to a person about Maybe our, their contraception decision or what to do next. We always have to be reminded that while we see that as a singular decision, it's not a singular decision for the patient in front of us. And so that's what reproductive justice means for me.
0: I love that framing. I think thinking that people don't make decisions just in a silo individually, that they make it all together. Um, and I, I think we're going to be talking about the whole perspective of how we make decisions. And so with that framing, I think we're going to just jump into our first case. And so you are meeting Anton. He's a healthy five-year-old boy presenting for a well-child visit with his dad. Dad doesn't have any concerns about his health, but did mention at school that the teachers are a little bit concerned. Yesterday, he was placed in timeout because at recess, he was found chasing and attempting to hug one of his classmates, Maria. And Anton became really frustrated and pushed her to the ground and stated, she is my girlfriend. And with this age, I think we're thinking about a lot of things, but. When exactly is a good time to start talking about development, attraction, and what's your approach to thinking about age and the type of conversations that you start to have with your patients?
1: Yeah, I love this case because I my answer to you is that there is no one age and that it's never too early to start. I think that we often, as a society, think that this concept is something that needs to be saved for a later age. But if we think about affection and love, we talk about that and we show that to our children from literally the minute that they're born. And so when you think about Anton and his desire to express his affection and maybe not being able to process the rejection of that affection, that's all normal development. Of course, I would want to have a conversation about using words and not our hands, right? We don't want to push somebody down. We want to be able to use our hands. But this is maybe a great opportunity where the parents and the pediatrician could start thinking about how can we help Anton process those feelings that he's having towards his classmate? How can he use his words to express what those feelings are and to normalize the fact that he might... Call her his girlfriend because that's also how he's heard adults in his life talk about people that they care about and that that's all really normal. He's he's imitating the people that he looks up to the most in his world.
0: I I don't think I've heard it framed that way that, imitating what people are seeing, saying that like, this is my girlfriend, because he's heard other people say like someone that they really love, call them, you know, their partner, their spouse, their girlfriend. And so framing this is just like another important step in their development. But it can still sound a little bit awkward to bring up some of these topics with parents. And, you know, I I think the idea of like, what do you mean, we're going to start talking about development or sexuality, like they're just in elementary school or middle school. And I don't want to be talking to my child about that. Or I think they're way too early. So how do you help providers that they're the trainees that you're working with help themselves overcome the awkwardness of discussing this, but also help parents kind of bring them to the table and start to make this a normal conversation? And how do we overcome those feelings so we can have a really empowering conversation to what you're alluding to?
1: Yeah. So I tell residents that I work with, if you're awkward and you're not comfortable talking about this, it's 10 times more obvious to the patients and the people in the room that you're uncomfortable. And so part of it is for residents and learners to think about why they're uncomfortable and to really examine how they can become more comfortable. Human development, the human body, is a normal thing. And, you know, I talk about with parents, for example, they can even just talk about development in reference to their body and their child's body. Your child might see a part of your body that looks different and you can explain the development through your own interactions with them. That's in a natural setting and is casual and and comfortable when it comes up and it doesn't have to be that classic birds and the bees conversation that we hear happen that that tends to be not wanted by either party involved right but that it's more of an ongoing organic conversation that's always happening and that it's normal i also tell people that like the human body is amazing And we need to talk about it and puberty and all the stuff that happens as this amazing thing that our bodies are going through and not something to be embarrassed by, not something to make it awkward, because it tends to be awkward enough when you're doing that in school. And so having a safe space where you kind of talk about the positives is never a bad thing.
2: One question I have is, you know, it is difficult sometimes for us as physicians, as providers to actually do this. Like... Is it just simply we need to practice over and over again, do it as much as we can with our patients or are there other ways in which you would recommend for us to get more comfortable in doing this?
1: Yeah. So I, I try to also give my residents and learners words and phrases that make them more comfortable. Right. So I think that there's some words that make everybody kind of giggle and laugh like penis or vagina or anal. And so it's normal for us not to maybe be super comfortable using those words. And so simple things like when you find somebody cute, is that a girl or boy or both? is an easy way to talk about attraction. When you are more than friends with somebody, are you doing things above the belt or below the belt? That's an easy way for like a young person also to express what's going on. And it's really Simple terms that make you feel more comfortable saying them. And the more you practice them, the more comfortable you will be when you're actually saying them in front of a patient. But if you don't have confidence in saying them, if you're not making eye contact with that patient, they're feeling that and they're feeling the stigma that they're already feeling from all the things in society that tell them that these parts of their body, these feelings that they're having are wrong. And I think we do an injustice when we perpetuate that in our medical settings, especially within pediatric settings.
2: I think we're going to talk a little more about how you approach this and start talking to them in the next case. Angelina, do you want to take it to the next step?
3: Sure. So I have another case, uh, next patient uh, in your clinic. So we have May. She is a 14-year-old patient, and she comes in uh, for her well-child visit with both parents. They have a history of uh, well-controlled asthma and allergies. And after discussing that, you would like to interview May without their parents to focus on uh, the social part of the exam or the quote-unquote HEADS exam. And so I'm curious, what is uh, your approach to uh, HEADS assessment? I you know, It's a very regimented kind of acronym. Um, but I, I appreciate kind of like your thoughts and how how to go about this part of the visit.
1: Yeah. So I tell my learners all the time, you're actually doing a heads assessment on every patient you're seeing, even newborns. We're asking who's living at home? Where are you spending your day? What things are you doing for safety? And so I challenge people not to say like, well, there's a certain age. We've got to start doing a heads assessment. It really is the questions you should be asking for every patient to understand what makes them who they are when they're not in front of you in that room. And so understanding where they're spending their time, who's part of their community, what are the people impacting their lives is an important question that should be asked for everybody. We all want to know whether a four-year-old is in daycare or at home because it's impacting how we're thinking about their development. The same thing about a 14-year-old wanting to know whether they have after-school activities or whether they're going home. And so I challenge people to remember that we have been doing heads exams the whole way. It's just on different parts of our templates, right? When we get into the quote-unquote teenage years, it ends up being this special part of the template, but we shouldn't necessarily treat it that way. I also encourage people to have private time with patients as early in age as you think that they are developmentally able to do that because it's really important for us to encourage autonomy in these medical settings. And even if it's just for a few minutes to hear how things are going at school or how things are going at home, you want to know that from like even younger kids. And there have been many times in our clinic that we have heard from young people, much younger than 13, about things that have been happening at school that their parents had no idea about because they just were really scared to tell their parents. They were scared their parents were going to get upset. They were scared their parents were going to be worried, or they were scared about the repercussions that might happen to them at school. And so having this moment where you let young people, regardless of their age, have a moment to just talk to you is a really important exercise. And then I find parents are less uncomfortable when you start having these conversations and layering on topics that might be more applicable as they get older. But also, if you're asking all these similar questions when they're younger, you can tell parents, you know, some of the same questions that we've been asking every year are the same questions I'm gonna ask your child now, but we just like to have them practice answering the questions in a healthcare setting by themselves. I love that. I think uh, you're right. It is important to kind of build that
3: autonomy. And I agree. I think what when you do kind of a hard stop at, at 13 years old, um, parents are like, oh, this is this is different. And I think it is important to kind of do that early. Another question I had kind of a part of the head's assessment is discussing sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and I wanted to kind of ask your thoughts on how you approach that topic um, and
1: ask that in uh, this patient in may or, or any age. So one of the things I always frame is that I always ask these questions to all my patients. That's what I always say first so that they don't feel like they're being asked these questions for anything other than it's part of our routine. I think that that's important when there's a lot of stigma around these questions, especially in certain settings or communities or states that we live in, right? And so asking a young person You know, these questions might seem obvious, but we just ask them for everybody. And starting with, when you think about yourself, how do you think about yourself presenting as a girl, a boy, or something else? And giving them simple words, because even the words of how do you identify, that's very medicalized and that doesn't really resonate with somebody who could be relatively young and you're having these conversations with you already heard my sexual attraction kind of questions. You know, who do you find attractive or who do you find cute? And I use the word cute not to be minimizing it, but it just ends up being a word that most people understand. And you know that most young, young kids, like toddlers, can tell you these answers. And we know from, like, data and literature that people with gender dysphoria know that at a really young age, people that are attracted to the same sex or different sex, they know that at the same age, at really young ages. And so it's important for us to acknowledge that and not assume that. I also very often have patients tell me, you're the, only, you're the first person that's ever asked me these questions. I've never told anybody that I'm attracted to both girls and boys. And I don't want you to tell anybody, and that's okay. But to just have a safe space for them to say this out loud can be really liberating for them in worlds where they might never be able to say that again for many years to come.
3: All right. Thank you. And um, so moving on to the case. So May discloses that she identifies as a girl, and she is interested in boys and girls. She has not had sex, um, but she is curious, as her best friend recently had sex with her boyfriend. And so kind of in talking about um, sex and someone who has not had um, sexual activity yet, I'm curious how do you define um, kind of quote unquote safe sex and how does your counseling differ uh, considering that she, she said that she's not sexually active yet?
1: Yeah. So I, again, would challenge any clinical provider that if you ask a young person if you're sexually active and think that you've done a good job or that you're done, I'm going to call you out and say that you failed my test. Okay, We all know that there's a lot of stuff that happens usually before sexual activity, like in the traditional form, before sexual intercourse has happened. There's a lot of stuff that's happening beforehand. And so if you just talk about the very end and miss the opportunity for the counseling and the questions and the open-endedness, beforehand, you're missing an an amazing opportunity to be a safe space for that young person and to also clarify questions that they might have and don't know where to get the answers. I live in a state where comprehensive sexual education is a myth per se in my mind. If it's happening, it tends not to be comprehensive and it tends not to include everything and by law has to emphasize abstinence only. And so if you are assuming that young people are getting any of this information from other sources, don't do that because your assumption is wrong. They tend to be learning about stuff online. They tend to be learning about stuff from their friends. And you are having an opportunity where you can say something or clarify or correct something if it's, if it's not accurate. So I always ask people, the way I do it is I ask them if they've ever been more than friends with somebody. That's how I get at, what their level of like intimacy is because if you use terms like boyfriend girlfriend sexually active or not you are assuming labels that are not necessarily the way other people use them and the older i get the more aware i am of like how out of date i am with like what the current terms are right but you know if somebody says well i don't understand what that means I can then explain to them and I normally explain to them that you know you would do things with this person that you probably wouldn't do with like your sister or your brother. And instantly they get it. They instantly know what I'm talking about. And we can then have a conversation about like, okay, so when you have done these things, has it been stuff above the belt or below the belt? And it's not that I don't care about above the belt stuff, but if they're below the belt already, I kind of have to ask more questions quickly to get to what else I want to get to, but it's amazing when people are just above the belt to have conversations about, tell me, tell me what questions you have. Tell me why it hasn't gone further. Tell me the conversations you're having with the partner that you're with. What would make you do anything more? How experienced is your partner? And really challenging them to have some of these conversations, even with their partner that they haven't had, or ask these questions to their partner that they haven't had, is a great way to open up those conversations. I also, the way I talk about what is happening is there are lots of different parts of your body that can touch. Your lips, your hands, your private parts. Can you give me an idea of what parts are touching? And that's another great way to get an idea of like what types of intimacy your patient is doing. If you just ask that they're sexually active and they say no, and you don't find out that they are almost sexually active, you've missed an opportunity to have a conversation with them about that next step and this conversation about how do you have, quote, safe sex. But I will challenge us all on the term safe sex because I think that that, again, gets back to this framework of sex is scary, sex is dangerous. Don't do it without like bad outcomes happening. And instead of looking and talking about it as like, again, part of normal human development, a way people express intimacy and feelings for one another and something that should be done with consent and should be something that feels good. And if we had more conversations that were framed like that, maybe we would have a different outcome in our country when we talk about some of the negative outcomes around sex.
0: I think that's a fantastic point of sex is just the continuation of someone's development and not this like scary thing that then encourages you to hide and to say that there is shame what's happening, I can't talk about what's happening, um, and I need to, you know, hide this part and not let people know unless something's really wrong, as to these are just things that we know that you might choose to engage in or not. Um, and so I, I want to be here as a provider who can help you through that or answer your questions. Um, and I've definitely been burned by asking, uh, are you sexually active? No. And then, like, turn around, your preceptor is like, uncovered this, like, history, and you're like oh, okay, Um, and learning to ask more specific questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think our medical education dives enough into this or does a lot that's developmentally appropriate in in the realm of, but how do you ask this question with different ages and different developmental stages and understanding? So it's not surprising that we get to, like, actually see patients on our own and we don't necessarily have all the right words um, and, and are uncomfortable.
2: So you were sort of, you, you did allude to this a little bit in terms of how to direct it by different age group or what they're developmentally able to, to do. And it sounds like you, you maybe shoot, you know, based on age, you sort of have a middle ground you sort of shoot for and then start feeling around how much they understand here or there. Do you have any other tips or tricks on how you sort of approach that? Are are there very specific Ways in which you say, well, this is definitely uh, early adolescent. This one's closer to 18, you know, or do you just not assume anything and just start and try to gauge where they're at?
1: I don't assume anything. And I think that, you know, I have um, patients of all different ages that are all on different like stages of development when it comes to their sexuality and all of that's normal and all of that's okay. So I don't think that there is, that's why I kind of go into this with these like middle line questions and then divert based on where their answers are taking me. Because I do think that if you, you know, talk to an 18 year old and you're like, are you sexually active? And they say, no, that might be something that makes them really feel uncomfortable or sad. And if you just assume that they're 18 and they must be, then that is, you know, that, that again, is something that we're, where you're just propagating this, like, negativity towards the patient. One of the things I would say is that when you look at large data, the average age of sexual initiation in America is around 17 and a half. And so that's average. And what's interesting, Chris, is that when you look at that data over decades, all the way back to the 1950s, when we have data on this, that age really has not changed, and so there's this this feeling and assumption that the the younger generation is so much more sexual and and experienced than 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 the older generation and it turns out that that's not actually true because it's just part of human biology when this naturally begins to happen but I challenge people that are pediatricians to remember this age and to think that, you know, if you are a pediatrician and you're like, yeah, no, that's just like not my thing. Like, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to do that. 50% of your patients are missing out on you acknowledging a huge part of their life and a part of, of what makes them who they are. And you not talking about it perpetuates this idea that it needs to be hidden and it needs to be like not talked about.
2: So, you know, as a busy pediatrician, I only have... 15, 20 minutes and I'm trying to do all this other stuff. I'm trying to convince them to wear their seatbelt and to, you know, make wise choices doing these other things. So in fact, I told my residents this today. Being primary care, our our superpowers that we get continuity. We can continue to bridge these gaps and talk about them every time we come in, but we have smart kids, you know, and they they may want to learn more at other times. Do you have any specific resources that you may give them? Like may not be books cuz I, I i know many books i i can't even get my kids to read but like are are there like great youtube resources or websites that they can read like things like otherwise you know i feel like you know my adolescent boys are just going to watch porn on tv or something like that like i don't like are there good places that you can say hey if you want to learn more check these out
1: yeah so one of my favorite websites that i give to patients parents learners is amaze.org It is a resource with lots of different videos, information, and it is designed by young people and for young people with a lot of youth engaged. And their tagline is more info, less weird, and it takes the awkward out of growing up. And I love this website. I think it's really great for different ages, different audiences, and I highly recommend it.
3: All right. So thank you so much. Um, I definitely will use this resource. I didn't know about it. Um, it does sound amazing. And kind of your point in that um, comprehensive sexual education in schools is, is lacking. And so I'm always wondering, I'm like, okay, if they can't get it at school and I don't have enough time to talk about it in clinic, uh, where else can they go? <laughs> and so kind of moving on with this case. And so you conclude with your visit, um, you give the appropriate vaccines, and you plan for a one-year uh, follow-up. Uh, but then about six months later that you see May is um, now 15 years old, um, and she's actually scheduled to Again for an acute visit um, with you with chief complaint of uh, contraception and you don't know anything else. So um, you're not sure if she'll be alone or with the parent or much more except for that chief complaint. And so I did kind of want to talk a little about kind of uh, legal things. Um, I think sometimes like with age and if a, a child comes in alone with a parent, that changes things. And so if you can talk a little bit about kind of uh, consent for uh, sexual reproductive health care services for minors. I know it's kind of state dependent, uh, but just kind of like your general approach for uh, pediatricians who are uh, concerned about those kind of things.
1: Yeah. So it is state-by-state based. And so I would encourage you to understand the laws in the state that you're in, as well as how your institution handles those laws. And my favorite website for that is the Guttmacher Institute. So that's guttmacher.org. They have up-to-date tables on every state and can very clearly delineate what services minors can consent to um, and which which services minors might need parental consent for. I also want to talk about the case in terms of the one-year follow-up. I very, very rarely let teenagers have one-year follow-ups because so much happens in their lives in a year. I try really hard to find something in their chart, some sort of medical or social reason to bring them back in three to six months because I think it's a really, really hard argument to make that there's no reason that they need to see you in a year, given the amount of development, both socially and physically, that they're going through during adolescence. And, Chris, your point about, like, counseling on seatbelts. I agree. It's super, super important. But they get those messages from other places in addition to us. And so making sure that we're not missing these opportunities to have touch points about like the other topics that we don't necessarily have happening in schools because of restrictive laws around sex education or other reasons, it's it's even more important to have that safe space to bring them back and to realize a year is a really long time in an adolescent's life to not see them. So I would say, I'm not surprised that this patient came back to us in six months because I probably could have told you that a lot of her, a lot of things in her life have changed. So if I was living in a state that allowed me to, to talk to this patient without their mom, I would do that. But I would, I always encourage young people to have trusted adults in their lives. It's not always a parent and that's okay. It's ideal if it is your parent for many legal reasons. But it is important that there is somebody in their lives that is of legal age that they can go to and that they can get help. And I try as much as possible to encourage that to be a parent. But for all the reasons we've talked about, it's hard for parents to also admit that their child is becoming independent, maybe doesn't need them, and is making decisions that they maybe don't agree with. And so it's a case-by-case and based on what state you're living in situation that you have to think about.
0: On that note of having a conversation with the parents how do you tell the adolescent, right? Like, so you preface this entire you know, time that you're having with the patient, you know what, like what stays between us is between us unless it causes any type of harm. So you've done the confidentiality statement. You said, this is kind of the terms of what we're gonna be talking about. And they've disclosed to you that they're interested in contraception and you want to help them talk to their family member about this conversation. How? What does that counseling look like as you're trying to talk directly to the patient sitting in front of you?
1: Yeah, so the first question I ask is, you know, I'm just going to say mom, but is mom who happens to be at this appointment or is mom aware about what we're talking about? Does she know why you had this visit today? Did she help you make this appointment? Do you feel like you can talk to mom about this decision and listen to those answers? I also always, Crystal, offer to be the ambassador to start that conversation. So I always offer to a young person, I am happy to have this conversation with your mom if you're ready to have it today with me here. And and I can start and I can say some of the words that maybe you're too scared to say right now. But if you are open and I encourage you to be open with your parent about this decision so that they can help you after this visit, navigate and troubleshoot anything that comes up, can we have this conversation together? Let me get them and let's have this conversation next. I also like rarely find parents that are not like suspicious or aware. You know, I think teenagers think that they're very good at keeping things from their parents and their parents sometimes are angry at the attempts to keep it from them. But I also challenge parents to think about how open they were for their child to come to them at first to talk about this and their fear of the anger following that conversation is why we're having this conversation in a clinic, not at your house. These are
0: wonderful. And I was just, one of the questions I wanted to ask is that we are often in states or from states that may have, you know, some more rules about what we can say, can't say, who can access care, who can't access care. If you are working with someone who's interested in contraception, they're under the age of 18, there are all of these, you know, we have new laws about how public our notes are going to be and the encounters that are shared. And maybe their parent has access to whatever provider dietary, you know, electric health record your your system is using. How do you have these conversations? How do you document these conversations? And then what advice do you give to trainees who are also trying to figure out how do I help this person not reveal these things that they're not ready to, but should they And then what kind of advice do you just give to the person who's like, okay, I'm interested in contraception. How do I pick it up? Where do I go without my parents knowing? Is it going to be on their insurance? Any advice you have on kind of navigating some of those tricky laws um, around privacy confidentiality?
1: Yeah. So these are all really good questions. And I encourage you to ask them in every institution that you're working in, um, I don't know if everybody listening here, but for my residency experience, I worked in like four different hospitals, right? And so the answer to some of these questions might be different literally in every single institution that you're sitting in. And it's important for you to understand how it works within each institution and each medical record. So... Crystal, you mentioned earlier kind of some of those confidentiality parameters that you put when you're having those conversations with a patient, right? You know, what we say, what we talk about here is confidential. I don't have to break that confidentiality unless you're going to hurt someone else. You're going to hurt yourself or somebody's hurting you. I always follow that up with we do Everything that we can on our side to keep these confidential conversations within your medical record. However, there is always a chance that that could be broken because your medical record is not only in these four walls that we're talking. And I need you to understand that risk, which is even more of a reason why we need to pull a parent in and get them in the loop so that this is not discovered in an accidental moment and catches you off guard. It could come to your house through an explanation of benefits from the insurance company. It could come when your parent picks up a prescription at the pharmacy and sees a list of prescriptions that have been picked up like on your family account. It could come when you're throwing away a birth control pack and you think you didn't you thought you hid it and your mom found it right so there's so many moments where it could come out and so that's even more reason why I try and encourage there to be an openness but to your point there are definitely situations where the emphasis for me is taking care of that patient and if confidentiality is the only way we can do it then I try my hardest to do that with making sure that their medical portal or their patient portal is not activated and talking about different methods in a way that thinks through that confidentiality piece. I am a huge, huge proponent of pediatricians providing contraception, and so we can talk about that. However, there is an important resource that all of us should know about, which are Title 10 Clinic, which are funded through the federal government and have federal protections no matter what state you live in. Texas is a little bit of an island, so I will put that in a box to talk about. But Title X in the other 49 states can provide confidential care that is protected by federal law and does not change based on the state that you live in and provides income-based care. And so if you have no job because you're 15, your services can fall under their sliding scale and be free. an important resource for you to know about, especially if I have a patient where a breach of confidentiality would mean they're kicked out of the home, they are in danger, I try to get them to a Title X clinic because that's the, the, the one way I can guarantee that that care is confidential.
0: I think that's a great reminder of making sure that we're using all of our resources that are available to us and making sure like the best care may not always be like right in front of me in my clinic. But if there's a title 10 clinic that's accessible to the patient, that they may be able to receive excellent care um, and the care that they need. Um, And with that, I would love to move on to our next case. It's a busy day in clinic for you. So your next patient is Chioma. She's a 17-year-old girl who presents for vaginal discomfort. She recently started having sex with her boyfriend and says that vaginal intercourse is painful. She later discloses that she's in a little bit of a rough patch with her boyfriend. He said some pretty hurtful things, but I don't think uh, he means it. She tells you, how do you discuss consent and pleasure with patients and just generally healthy relationships?
1: There are topics that I think we should talk about so much more than we do in pediatrics. I would probably ask this patient, tell me what you mean by a rough patch. What does that mean to you? Does that mean that you're arguing? Does that mean that there's ever verbal violence, physical violence, sexual violence? Do you always feel that when you are sexual or intimate with your partner, that that is what you wanna be doing? I think even the word consent Is charged. And so that's how I say, that's how I talk about consent. Is it something that you want to be doing? And tell me if it ever feels good. Does it ever feel good? Are there times where it just doesn't feel good, but there are other times where it does feel good, or does it always feel painful? Because it's not supposed to feel painful. And I would want to examine what is going on and why she is not. Having more pleasure from her intimacy. And, you know, to an earlier comment, Chris, that you made, a lot of young people are learning about sex from porn. And it is an unfortunate situation because it is 100% fake and super artificial. But the way pleasure is expressed or displayed in porn is very not female centric and it's very um, fake. So if people think that that's what it's supposed to be and I'm just not feeling that way or I don't moan and groan that way when he does that, something's wrong with me, um, it's really important for us to bring a little bit of reality to their understanding of what it's supposed to look like. We don't have a lot of beautiful, healthy sex in our common media forms. You know, I tell my residents all the time, think about what people are seeing on television they, or on even even in movies. They're kissing and then the next scene, they wake up and they're naked and it's just all done. There's no conversation about how they got from point A to Z. There's no conversation about who's using a condom. How are we gonna put that on? Do I use lubrication? Do I not? There's None of that has happened. They're just happy and their makeup is perfect and they're laying in bed next to each other and it's all done. And that's what we think of as like, we're shocked that people don't understand how to get from point A to point Z. You know, and and the only way we do show that is through porn. Let's not be surprised at the misinterpretations and the misrepresentations we have around sex for our young people, but even for adults.
0: That's so important to remember. I was just listening to a podcast, Death, Sex and Money, and they just had an episode on like, how did you first learn about sex? And they were like talking about dirty dancing and like just different movies and stuff where it's just like, this is how I learned about it. These are the images and the things that I'm seeing. And then also I'm thinking about like all the shows I watch on HBO. I'm like, House of Dragons or whatever that show was Game of Thrones. Violence. Yeah. It's like it's so it's really interesting to think about like the media that people are consuming and the way that they're thinking about replicating it. But bringing it back to our patient um, with Chioma, um, you screen her for interpersonal violence um, and determine with, you know, good conversation with her that. This isn't something that she is concerned about, and it's something that you as a clinician, this rough patch that um, you have any concern about, but something that you'll continue to have more conversation. She brings up to you that she would actually like to discuss contraception options, and she really doesn't know where to begin. Her mom says like the pill will cause her terrible mood swings, and she heard that the shot will cause weight gain. She's definitely not interested in that. So what are some common misconceptions you hear about from your adolescent patients about contraception, um, and how do you counsel them through that?
1: Yeah. So whenever I'm talking about contraception, I always, my first question is, tell me what you've heard. What methods have you heard of? You'll be surprised that they haven't heard of the vast methods that are available in most cases, that a lot of their information is coming from friends, siblings, aunts, you know, figures in their life that they trust. It is really, really important for you not to minimize what they've heard or to say that that's not true. Because when you say that, that is not patient-centered and that's not shared decision-making at all. And you are saying that that trusted person in their life had an experience that didn't matter. And that tends to happen to patients that are not white much more than it happens to patients that are white. And so I say that because we started this conversation about reproductive justice as well. You know, thinking about what some of our biases are when we when we go into these conversations, thinking that you have the best method for that patient is 100% the wrong way to go into this conversation. I always tell people the best birth control is the one that an adolescent likes and is going to use. And that could be condoms. But if they use them 100% of the time, That is better than a birth control pill or a birth control shot that they're using 50% of the time. And that is where we have to also take off our hat of efficacy, which is hard in medicine, right? We always want the best of the best. But realizing that birth control method choice is not always driven by efficacy for our patients, but quite often by the side effect profile. And so for some patients, having a period every single month is really important to them. If it's important to you, then I'm not going to really talk about depo for you because that is a birth control method that will make your period irregular and might make your period go away. And if that's important to you to have, then we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. There are also people where, you know, weight gain or mood swings is their concern or having something inside their body is a concern. And so hearing some of the patient items that are important to them can also really help guide you through that conversation. If this patient has no idea what they want, I usually say that the way I think about birth control methods is by how often you have to remember to take it. And there's some methods where you have to remember every day. And then there's some methods where you don't have to remember for years and there's everything in between. So I'm going to just talk about them in that way. But if anything resonates with you right then and there, tell me. The ones that take every day, those are methods that are easy to change the types and you can start and stop them by yourself. You don't need me. The methods that take years, but you don't have to think about it every day, Those are methods that you would have to come back probably if you wanted to change it and see somebody. So it's not a method that you can start and stop on your own. And so those are very patient-centered elements to think about how to frame a conversation. In recent years, I'm sure you all have heard or maybe even were taught that we were supposed to counsel based on efficacy and starting with the most efficacious method first and go down the way. And that has really fallen out of favor. And so I encourage everybody listening to think about what matters to a patient first and frame your counseling around that and not what matters to medicine.
3: I think that's a very important framework to have, um, especially with adolescents. Um, I think they have kind of different priorities and different time constraints. Um, I always kind of wonder, you know, like with school and other activities, like their ability to follow up. And so that kind of changes like their ideas of what is a good birth control method for them. So I did, um, I think we talked about contraception, but I, I did want to also ask you about kind of emergency kind of like plan B
1: and kind of like your thoughts on, on uh, prescribing that or access to that. My favorite question. Thank you so much. Um, I actually started my research career, examining plan B availability and access. And so it's something that I wish pediatricians did more of. So to the point of everybody has a plan A, which is what we were talking about with this patient, maybe their birth control method that they choose. And for every patient I talk about plan B And I talk about it as our backup method. And then based on the method that they're using, why a backup method would be applied, right? So if you have an injection every three months, well, we would use this if you hadn't seen me in three months and we're late for your next injection. If you're taking pills, we would use this if you had missed two days worth of pills or were worried that you had missed more. If you're using condoms, we would use this if you did not use a condom or if the condom fell off or if the condom broke. I always prescribe it, which is unfortunate because it is available over-the-counter. However, there's persistent barriers to access for young people, even though they can find it at a pharmacy. And you all know that when there's a prescription from a clinician, there's not as many questions. They can get it filled. And so that's why I prescribe it, number one, to make sure they can get it in their hands. Number two... It's expensive. On average, it's around $45 to $60 per dose. And so if you can prescribe it, it is often covered by insurance companies. And then number three, I always prescribe it with refills because the last thing I want is for a patient to use it and not have it again later. And then we find young people also sometimes give Plan B to their friends. And so if you only give them one and they gave it to their best friend that really needed it, that leaves them without one dose for themselves. So I always give a lot of refills when I prescribe. So uh, can you uh,
3: tell us more about emergency contraception and, and different types um, and just kind of uh, a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, one of my favorite topics. So I just want to clarify that there are actually three types of emergency contraception that are available, two of which are a little bit more difficult to obtain, mainly because one of them is an IUD, and so that's an intrauterine device which would need to be placed by a clinical provider. But if it can be placed within five days of unprotected intercourse, that means that you have not only your emergency contraception on board, but you also have a long-acting reversible form of contraception on board. The second form is called Ella, which is the name brand for ulipristal acetate. That is prescription only. It is effective up to five days after unprotected sex. And so for patients that come to me on day four or five, I will prescribe Ella rather than the third form of emergency contraception, which I'm going to talk about, um, which is levonorgestrel. This is the one that you probably have heard of as plan B, the morning after pill. This is the one you see at the pharmacy on the shelf. This is a form of emergency contraception that works up to five days after unprotected sex, but definitely works better the sooner you take it. So I prescribe plan B with any patient that has a plan A of birth control or even no plan of birth control, just somebody who would benefit from having emergency contraception in their hands because the sooner it's taken, the better it works. I tell people just like we have Tylenol in our cabinets for when we have a a headache, if you are contemplating sexual activity or you are sexually active, you should have plan B in your cabinet as well for that uh uh-oh moment where you need to take it as soon as possible. I also try to frame the conversation based on the method that a person is using to make sure they understand when and if to take plan B. I always prescribe it um, because it helps assure access for young people in particular. It helps with insurance coverage because it can cost quite a chunk of change, almost $50 in some cases, which is hard for even me to find in my checking account these days. Um, And then I always give them refills on my prescription so that they always have access when they need it, especially if they've used a dose or given a dose to a friend. There really are no concerns in terms of like a side effect profile for emergency contraception. And I tell people that it is safer than Tylenol. It is a high dose of progesterone, that delays ovulation if you have not ovulated yet and thickens your cervical mucus, which acts as a barrier to not let sperm and egg meet if you have ovulated. So that's how it works. It only works at one dose you take, right? So it doesn't give you protection for the rest of your cycle, which is also a misunderstanding that I've heard. And so it's really important that people understand how it works, that it is not an abortifacient. Unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of misperception and even the name the morning after pill kind of perpetuates that misunderstanding that it could cause an abortion because it absolutely is the same hormone your body makes when you are pregnant. And if you took it when you were pregnant, nothing could happen. And it does not cause bleeding. It just delays ovulation. And so that's another important piece to explain to young people. It actually might make your period a few days late because you've delayed ovulation if you were just about to ovulate. Excellent.
2: Well, I think we're getting close to the end of our discussion here. I just want to make sh- I want to see if um, anyone else had other questions, or Tracy, you had other things you want to make sure our listeners knew about before we sign off.
1: Yeah, I would just say that I would encourage people to have these conversations with every single patient that they interact with. I think a lot of our cases today were centered on female presenting patients. And I would encourage people to have these conversations with all their patients because it's a really important and eye-opening way to get into some of the things that they're thinking about, answer the questions that they inevitably have on their brain, um, and to be a trusted resource for them. I think
0: one thing that I would love to add is also thinking about that reproductive justice framework that we we started with, with this conversation, and thinking about the choices that our patients are making are not happening in isolation. I think particularly about when I'm talking about contraception access for my black and brown patients, my Latina patients who are coming into me, and the idea of trying to control what their reproductive options look like. Are, you know, I I think about like the old school based, like let's clinics, like let's give out contraception as a way for the medical field to say, we want to offer things that are efficacious to our patients. But that coming across as, is this a eugenics plan from the medical system of like trying to control the amount of kids that we bring into our communities? So, really having that patient centered focus helps us eliminate and really mitigate the biases that can come from our medical systems because it's not a lark or a bust. It's whatever our patient uses within the context of what their situation is, within the cultural, you know, context as well, what their parents may have used, what they want to use, what decision about if they want children, how many children, all of those things should be patient led. And we, as you know, they're pediatricians, we are some of the greatest cheerleaders And this is an opportunity for us to cheer right alongside them as they grow up um, and just another stage of development. So reproductive justice, I think, is a really great rooting framework for all of the conversations that we're having.
2: Well, Tracy, before we log off, I just want to ask, do you have anything you want to plug? Is there anything that you want our vast audience of Cribsider listeners to, to know about before we finally sign off?
1: I mean, you know, Crystal's answer just reminded me of my favorite questions that I like to ask all of my patients. They're called the path questions. And the the P-A-T-H tells you what the question is. So P-A stands for parenting attitudes. T is timing. And H is how important. So these are the three questions I love to ask all of my patients. Do you want to parent one day? When do you think that might be? And how important is it to prevent pregnancy until that time? And I love these questions because they give you a huge insight into the goals of your patient where they are in their headspace about so many things, but it also doesn't rely on sexual activity. And so for people that are nervous about those types of questions, but can open the door with just hearing about somebody's goals, about maybe one day being a parent and what has to happen um, to get to that point, it is an amazing conversation opener for people to learn in a very patient-centered way.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much again for spending uh, this evening with us. I learned a whole bunch, and I'm sure our listeners will too.
3: Thank you so much to our wonderful guest, Dr. Tracy Wilkinson, again, for giving us some great insights. Uh, This has been another episode of The Cribsiders.
0: It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for weekly Knowledge Food Formula feeds and newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com.
2: We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Crystal Angelina here, our executive producer for this episode, Dr. Max Cruz, and our showrunner, Sam Maser, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I have been Chris the Chimanchu. Thank you. Good night.
0: Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.